Welcome to Granite State Matters, the busy person's way to catch up with what's happening in Concord. Because the extremists are taking over the state house, And what you don't know can hurt you. I'm Steve Marchand. And I'm Terry Harkins. Today's podcast looks at New Hampshire's new school vouchers, the EFA program. How they set up one of the most expansive voucher programs in the U.S. That funds private and religious schools and out-of-state companies. With our tax dollars. So we'll be talking later with Jack Schneider, co-author of a wonderful book, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School. Uh, But first, Terry, tell us, how did this state, with the third best school system in America, get here? Steve, Jack Schneider has issued a warning. The wolf is lurking at the door of America's public schools. Those who are seeking to dismantle the system are unified, patient, and well-resourced. Without enough support in the House to pass a very unpopular school voucher scheme on its own, this summer extremist lawmakers, now in the majority at the State House in Concord, passed into law what they've branded as education freedom accounts. Instead of going through the democratic process of putting it before the voters, they hid it in a must-pass budget bill. And these vouchers, the voucher bill gives families with incomes under three times the poverty level. That's $79,500 for a couple with two children. So the bill gives them an average of $4,600 per year to spend for tuition or purchases. Uh, After 10% off the top comes off to administer the program. So in the long run, all the money we're talking about is coming out of local school budgets but they're delaying the impact on property taxpayers till after the 2022 election. How convenient is that? <laughs> I guess we really won't know until it hits us, right? And I, I mean, that's got to be what part of the goal here is, is huge impact. But uh, making sure that this, this vote, this bill, this new voucher law is in the rearview mirror long enough that by the time everybody that voted for it is out of office or running for another office or whatever, it's going to be in the rearview mirror a couple of years. That's right. Steve, how did they get this through? Don't we have a, an amendment that no money raised by taxation shall ever be granted or applied for the use of schools or institutions of any religious denomination? I mean, that sounds pretty... Uh, airtight, education funding is really at the bullseye of almost all discussion like this. Right, Steve. Um, and didn't uh, Commissioner Edelbutte propose this program for 28 vouchers, and now we're, now we're into maybe 1,000 to 1,500? In a very short amount of time, there was a, uh, a recalculation. And the thing is, if back when this was discussed early in 2021, if Commissioner Edelbutte or other legislators had said, hey, This is going to be not 28, but, you know, 1,500. And this is going to cost tens of times more. Seven million bucks. Yeah. This this would have been the kind of public pressure at that point that probably would have killed this. So when this bill was announced, a lot of hoopla and a lot of big names from the Trump administration, Betsy DeVos, Mike Pompeo, uh, uh, celebrated this. And Mike Pompeo actually said one of the reasons we needed this is because of the problems with the public school monopoly, as he called it, that all of the uh, the weaknesses and the outcomes because it's a monopoly of public schools. Well, here's the reality. 
If you look at the top 10 scoring nations on international tests, relying on all of them, all of the top 10, rely on public education. They have a system that's very much like the United States. It is, to use Mike Pompeo's words, a monopoly. He does that to make it sound scary. Those that point at declining educational outcomes for the United States relative to the rest of the world will often point to public schools and say, aha, that's the problem. But of course, it's not the problem. The best performing countries in the world have public schools. The real problem is increased poverty rates in the United States. And we know when you decrease poverty rates in a community, a state, a country, we see improved educational outcomes. So it's a red herring to try to connect public schools as the problem when we know that they're actually a part of success in the best performing countries in the world. Sure is. And the only way this voucher scheme could be lawfully set up under the New Hampshire Constitution was for the legislature to set up a system of middlemen profiteers that get a piece of scarce educational dollars. The Children's Scholarship Fund has been set up to skim 10% off the top of each voucher awarded. A significant portion of that admin fee will be going to Class Wallet, a Miami, Florida firm. That sounds like a waste of taxpayers' money, Steve. Steve, would this voucher scheme pass if it was put to the voters? There's no chance. Let's take the example of Arizona. The Arizona Attorney General's Office has launched an investigation for fraud into the microschool company Prenda. Prenda keeps half of the voucher money uh, while another company hires the guides, they call them. They're not teachers. They don't have to be certified. And the guides have to find their own students. So like all voucher students, Prenda's kids don't have to take quantitative testing. They just turn in a portfolio. So there's really no measurement of educational outcomes. I'll tell you one thing. You lack accountability in the money. I mean, one of the strengths that no matter what your party affiliation, I think uh, we'd all agree, accountability for the money is critical when you're talking about something like public education. And with traditional local public schools, this is the role of the school board. This is the role of public um, hearings, public comment at your local uh, town or school board meeting. This is the accountability that we're used to over the past couple of centuries in a place like New Hampshire. What we've seen is as you divert the public dollars in these ways, like this new law would, like it will, it also diverts the accountability away. So it, over time, uh, will make it more and more difficult to identify the kind of fraudulent behavior that we've seen in states that have already tried this kind of thing. And this is part of what I think the public will and needs to know over the, uh, the next couple of years. One of the impacts of vouchers is it's going to shift millions of dollars from local New Hampshire-based educator jobs to out-of-state organizations. So we're talking about thousands of jobs over a period of years, teaching jobs, that will be lost over time to out-of-state online employers. But there's another part that is so New Hampshire and is so threatened. In a lot of smaller towns in New Hampshire, the school is the organizing principle. That is the culture of the community. And they're so small that even a small loss of students peeled off because of this new EFA program basically mean the math kills the school district altogether. And when that happens, you end up laying off the rest of the teachers and all associated jobs with that local school district. New Hampshire is really well known, perhaps more than any state in America, for its culture of small school districts, local control in that respect, but cherishing 
the role of public schools in these small communities. This has the real potential in a surprisingly short amount of time to not just knocking out jobs from those uh, school districts, but in so doing, eliminating the school district altogether. Uh, the consequences of that are difficult to overstate. And you know, Steve, if you ask, most parents will say they love their teachers. Teachers are extremely popular in the community. They are the, the binding agent in a lot of communities, particularly smaller communities. And here's another thing. And this is for all those folks who maybe don't have a kid right now in the public school system. This is real skin in the game for you, too. If you ask employers, what is the thing that draws people to a community or an area? One of the main drivers is the perceived quality of the local public school system. If people see that they, their family is going to be absorbed into a quality public school where they work and play and live and get educated, that's an enormous uh, competitive advantage for an employer trying to drive talent into the area at a time when that is more competitive than it's been in a long time. This is going to help push, particularly in smaller communities that may already be at a competitive disadvantage for such employers and employees. It's going to further push them away uh, from having that competitive advantage. And that's something just not getting talked enough about, uh, you know, in the aftermath of this bill passing. So the upshot is public schools get worse. Property tax is going to rise. Next up, we're joined by Jack Schneider. Uh, this is his fourth book. He's the co-author of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School. It's a great read. Jack, thanks for joining us. Welcome, Jack. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Seen you speak a number of times about the book and obviously education and you spend a lot of time setting it up, the history of how we got to this point. You mention in the book, with the exception of a brief and ill-fated push by the Reagan administration, vouchers had slowly faded from the conservative policy agenda. Can you tell us why they're back and how that fits into the history of how we got to this moment? Yeah, there are a few reasons why uh, they've come roaring back uh, in the past couple of years after having seemingly been dead uh, during the early years of the Reagan administration. One of the reasons is that conservatives and neoliberals over the past couple of decades have really elevated school choice as a kind of fundamental right in education. Um, that was a policy compromise, right? So neoliberals, people like Cory Booker, for instance, saw charter schools as a way of opening up the traditional public education system to choice, the market, some competition, but preventing the sort of full-scale marketization that conservative ideologues had been proposing from 1960 onwards. Uh, for conservatives, you know, they really saw that uh, vouchers weren't something the American people were interested in uh, and really stopped pushing for them in the mid-1980s and saw charter schools as a way to introduce elements of the free market into the public education system while recognizing that vouchers were probably an end game that they weren't going to get to. Uh, at the same time, there were people in that group, people like Betsy DeVos, for whom vouchers were always the end game. And that's really important to remember here because uh, a lot of these Democrats who went along with school choice believed that this was a kind of good faith compromise that charters were the end of the line. And really, they just ended up laying a long runway 
for people like Betsy DeVos or her New Hampshire counterpart, Frank Edelblut, to land the voucher airplane on. Uh, Americans have been told for the past couple of decades that school choice is a kind of panacea, um, that the traditional public education system is broken. Um, this has done a lot to open up opportunities for market schemes. Um, another key reason is that they've learned to put their old wine into new bottles, mm. right? We're not talking about bad politicians here, even if we disagree with their ideas. They have succeeded in repackaging some of these ideas as quote unquote disruptive innovations, right? Um, they're bringing us um, Netflix for schools or Uber for schools. In fact, Betsy DeVos, when she was Secretary of Education, made that direct comparison. Um, you know, held up Uber as a kind of example. And vouchers are not that, right? They are an, a very old idea rooted in free market ideology rather than in empirical evidence as a kind of educational reform. But now they're being pitched in a new way, right? It's not a voucher. It's an education savings account. It's not a voucher. It's a tax credit. It's not a voucher, right? It's something else. It's who knows where the money's coming from? Who knows what the consequences will be? But this is going to be uh, something new that you haven't seen before. Well, we know there's nothing new under the sun, um, but it's being presented as if there is. And then finally, you know, I've mentioned her twice. Betsy DeVos was very successful in her run as Secretary of Education, not in the sense that she accomplished anything in terms of policy, but in that she normalized an extreme kind of rhetoric. So she really did a lot to clear the path for people like Frank Edelblut or his counterparts in other states. And I think we're going to be dealing with the fallout for that uh, for the next few years. New Hampshire's voucher program is the most expansive in the country. What do you think makes New Hampshire's Education Freedom Accounts program a bigger threat to our public schools than systems used in other states? I don't know that it'll be bigger, but it, it certainly promises uh, to drain more funds out of the public education system than most other systems if people decide that they want to take advantage of it. Um, so education savings accounts, right? This is New Hampshire, so it's an education freedom account, I think is what it's called there. But Right, everything's about freedom. Yeah, right. It's an ESA. So ESA money is unlike a traditional voucher where that money goes directly to a school. And one of the reasons that you might want to use an ESA is that you want to get around your state constitution, right? You can't directly hand funds out of the state treasury to a religious school. You are uh, prevented by the constitution from doing that. And of course, the Supreme Court has ruled that if you're going to give funds to uh, non-parochial private schools that you can't then bar parochial schools uh, from voucher programs. So ESAs are a kind of workaround here. And it's not just that they're a workaround for dealing with these pesky constitutions of ours. Uh, it's also that they're a very convenient way of draining money out of the public schools. Because in many cases, ESAs have no accountability or oversight built into them. Arizona is a good example. And that's why I was hesitant to say, you know, that New Hampshire's might be the most dangerous because in Arizona, what they've seen is tremendous fraud and abuse and nobody can do anything about it because there again is no oversight built into this. And that's by design, right? Because the end game here is not, despite the rhetoric about serving kids, 
It's about undermining the public education system. And the best way to do that is by depriving it of the revenue that is necessary to run schools. If you succeed at that, then the whole system begins to collapse. Then you really do create demand for alternatives, which presently doesn't really exist. In states like New Hampshire, people are generally pretty satisfied with the schools that their kids attend. Um, this is not to say that our schools are equal. This is not to say that our schools are as uniformly excellent as we would like them to be. Our schools have problems, and those of us who care about public education are the first to recognize that. But I think we believe in the fundamental principle of public education, of universal, taxpayer-supported public education for everyone to prepare people to participate equally in an egalitarian democracy. And we simply can't have that in a private system. And we don't really want a private system. And that's why efforts like this generally try to dodge the democratic process and really try to subvert the public education system rather than offering a viable alternative that people could compare side by side and say, you know what, we actually like this thing better, right? You're not going to like it better because instead of getting enough money to actually pay your child's tuition, right? I'm not talking about an expensive private school. I'm talking about even the tuition at a public school, right, which on average nationwide is about 10,000 bucks, you're going to get on average here about half of that. And what are you going to spend it on? Well, if there isn't oversight built into it, you could spend it on whatever you want. And that, of course, is going to raise major questions about what we, the taxpayers, are getting out of this, right? What's going to happen to the young people who are being educated on, on average, about $4,500 per pupil? right? The whole thing doesn't really hold water. Here in New Hampshire, uh, there's, you know, this additional threat, which is that in many states, there's at least something baked in to say, okay, well, this is only going to apply to, you know, uh, low-income population, people who are below the poverty line, or it's only going to apply to special education populations. Um, here, you know, there are going to be lots of people who are qualifying, uh, including families who have never had their kids in the public schools, which is effectively going to be a handout to middle-class families paying private school tuition, right? Uh, hey, you can afford private school tuition. Well, here's Here's a few thousand bucks for you every year. Um, and again, you have to question the motives there. And if the motive is, well, let's just find a way to bleed the public education system of resources, then suddenly it makes sense. Oh, right, right. The point is actually to destabilize the public education system so that you can once and for all cross that off your to-do list, right? And create a privatized system that we, the public, don't pay for, that we, the public, have no say in. Um, you know, you can finally get those pesky teachers and their unions uh, to be quiet and, you know, bring about the kind of oligarch's dream uh, that, you know, many of these far right conservatives are in favor of. Little regulation and no accountability. <laughs> there you go. And so I guess uh, uh, all in one bill. And I guess a question is, as we look ahead, obviously, there's a lot of folks going to do a lot of work to try to push this back to reveal the truth as, as you lay out well uh, today in your book and so forth. You mentioned in your book, uh, I think it's the last sentence of it, uh, the best way to drive off a wolf is to band together and fight back. So I think a logical question a lot of us are going to have is, what are the early steps to fighting back based on what has worked and not worked to, to kind of fight back on this in other states? As a practical matter, what are the next couple of steps for those of us that see it for what it is as you described today? 
think the first thing is just to get informed. Uh, so, you know, obviously um, my co-author Jennifer Berkshire and I have a book that, uh, you know, lays out the sort of big picture. That's one way you could get informed, but you can also uh, just let your fingers do the walking and, you know, do a little research on the internet. Uh, you know, New Hampshire Public Radio has covered some of this stuff. Um, there have been editorials and op-eds in various newspapers. Um, people ought to just get up to speed. You know, there's a lot going on in the world right now. Our world is on meltdown uh, at the moment in, in ways both metaphorical and literal, unfortunately. So, you know, I don't blame people for whom this has not been a pressing priority. Uh, I would encourage them, you know, carve out 15 minutes to just get up to speed on this, right? That's number one is to get informed. Second is to make clear to your elected representatives where you stand on this. Um, because, you know, I think that it's pretty clear that a lot of them know that if they want to push this forward, they've got to sort of do it uh, under cover of night. But I think for many of them, uh, there's a belief that, you know, there isn't going to be accountability for them in any of this. And so I think one of the important first steps is to make that clear, um, that we see what you're doing and we're not happy about it. Uh, beyond that, I would say, you know, forming coalitions of people who are not just, you know, the usual suspects here. Uh, so if it's, if it's just teachers up in arms, um, you know, there are ways to cast teachers as looking out for their own interests. We've seen that narrative over the past few decades. If it's, you know, just people who uh, are registered Democrats, you know, there's a way to sort of dismiss their concerns. But this is something that should concern Republicans and Democrats. This is something that should concern teachers and parents and students themselves. It's something that should concern local taxpayers who might want to know, you know, what are they actually getting for their tax dollars? I like to know when I pay my taxes, I live in Massachusetts, I like to know that the young people in my community and in my commonwealth are getting something out of that. They're getting an education that prepares them to participate as equal citizens in my community, in my state, and in my nation. Um, that I, I get something from that. Um, so we all have a stake in this. And I feel like, you know, the, the next step beyond these sort of immediate small actions we can take as individuals, um, the next set of actions involve us working together in leveraging some of the organizations that we have in our membership, in, you know, associations, both formal and informal, to try to link those groups together to take a stand against something that's really bad for young people in general and bad for all of us uh, in general, right? This is something that we ought to be able to talk really clearly about, and that's why getting educated is so important, right? To be able to put this not in partisan terms, um, to, you know, avoid uh, the tendency to, you know, just resort to screaming at each other, and to be able to lay out the facts really clearly and say, here's why we all lose, uh, and to have people from, you know, different political persuasions, different life experiences, all being on the same side, willing to talk their, their neighbors and their peers uh, around on this issue. Because, you know, I, again, I think this is something that everybody can come together on. Uh, even people, you know, who might have frustrations with the public education system. Um, I think that, you know, even they can see, gosh, you know, this isn't enough money to actually send your kid 
to a private school, if that's for whatever reason what you think the ideal is. Um, it's not going to really save any money for public schools because how do you, you know, fire one eighteenth of a teacher if uh, a kid leaves a class? Um, you know, schools don't scale down in terms of costs that way, right? There are just a lot of things that you can talk through with folks where, where they'll see, you know, um, the status quo isn't perfect, but this is certainly not a solution. This is certainly not a partisan issue, and thanks for making us smarter. Thanks for having me. All right. Once again, Jack Schneider, if you, if you haven't heard of the book, if you haven't picked it up, please do. Co-author of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School. Folks, I'm sure once they read this, we'll be able to preach the gospel as well, and we thank you again for being on today. Sign up for our bi-weekly podcast at your favorite podcast provider because the extremists are taking over the statehouse. And what you don't know can hurt you. <laughs>